In the song, part of it I noticed just now said that we will declare our choices to the nations. And when I think about that, it reminds me of the reality of, of the world that we live in today. That in reality, there are two choices. And there are choices of stories that we will believe. There is the one story, and everybody has a story. There is the one story that's a humanist story that says that it's all about us. It's all about the strong, only the strong surviving. It's all about the best, the fastest, who can get there, the best school, the best location. It's all about what we want because we are the center of it all. On the other hand, there's the biblical story. That's the second choice. And in that story, it's the, it's the story that God superintends all of history. And that we are actually part of that story. And the great thing about being part of God's story is that we don't have to try to be the center because we have already chosen Jesus Christ as the center. He is our center. And we revolve around that center. We are with him. Jesus Christ is our center. And so you, you choose a story, and you will declare that story in your lifestyle. That story will be declared to the nations. We, <clears throat> one of my favorite scholars of this time, biblical scholars, is a person named N.T. Wright. He was formerly the, uh, the uh, Bishop of Durham in England at the Church of England contemporary writer. He's written prolifically all, all kinds of books, theology books, and I, and I like his theology. I love his theology. But one of the models that he uses, and it's not unique to him, is that there is this sense that there's this divine drama going on. And maybe some of you have heard this before, but in the divine drama, which is God's story, uh, we, we're, we're actually, it's composed of about five acts. Act one is the creation. God creates his kingdom. Act two is the rebellion against God's kingdom, the fall of Adam and Eve. Act three is the promise of restoration of God's kingdom. That's Israel's mission. God has given Israel, called them out as a people, and said, you out will be the light for the world. Act four, the kingdom is restored. Why does it need to be restored? Because they failed. They couldn't pull it off. And so the kingdom was to be restored. How was the kingdom restored? The kingdom was restored because Jesus was given this mission. And his task was to go before the people and be that light for us. Act 5 moves into this whole thing of the church. And from Jerusalem to Rome, Rome there's the inauguration of this church, the movement of the church. The book of Acts speaks about that. And then that act we're kind of right in the place where probably at scene two in that act. And what that means is that the, the last scene, that, which is the act, last act, which is the act when Christ returns, we're not there yet. What I'm suggesting is that you have to find your place in the story. And we as a people of God have found ourselves at this place in the story in act five, scene two. And that's where I want to pick up the story from where the disciples, Jesus Christ, is getting ready to leave the disciples after ministering to them, with them, for three years. 
And now he's going to leave them. He's in the upper room and he's going to say, he's already told them, I'm speaking plainly to you now. I'm going away. You're going to have a comforter and all of that, but I'm going away. And before, as he tells them the news, they finally get it. And when they get it, they're, they're, they're still not quite understanding what to do with it, but the fact of the matter is there's, there's God in Christ is, is going now to his heavenly Father to pray for them. It is one of the most powerful prayers in the Bible. John chapter 17, that whole chapter, verses 1 through 26, where Jesus is speaking to the Father. It's like we are kind of eavesdropping, listening in on that prayer. And it speaks some very powerful stuff for us right now in the 24th century. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, now we ask that you would just uh, lead us, that you would move the preacher out of the way, that you would simply speak, that you would have your way, God, that you would talk to us where we're at, each and every one of us. This is a divine appointment, God, and everybody here is here by divine appointment. And so, God, I pray that, that the words of my mouth be and the meditations of my heart be acceptable for you. Let me be true to your word, that your word will go forth. In the precious and matchless name of Jesus Christ, the church said, amen. Now, chapter 17 is a very lengthy passage. It's 26 verses. I have no intention of actually exegeting all 26 verses. We wouldn't have enough time. We'd have to be here. We'd have to go into... uh, to, uh, overtime, and, and then I'd have to do a tag team with Pastor Scott. He'd have to pick up some of it, and then he'd have to tag it back. We'd be here for about three or four days. Can't do that. But what I want to do, with your permission, what I want to do is I want to hit some nuggets, some key pieces, I think, that, that speak to us that's in this text. And uh, let me read the text for you. If you have a way, uh, your Bible or your, on your phone, follow with me, please. Chapter 17 of the book of John. Jesus spoke these things, lifting up his eyes to heaven. He said, Father, the hour has come. Recall there are many times when he says his, his hour had not yet come. It was not yet his time. And now it is his time. What does that mean? Now his divine appointment for the cross is at hand. He is getting ready to be killed, crucified, just as the Father's plan was, just, with, just exactly as this divine plan had laid out, that he would sacrifice his life. No one would take it from him, but he would willingly give his life. Why? Because God so loved the world that he gave his son. Keep that in mind. Glorify your son that the Son may glorify you, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. This is eternal life. By the way, this verse 3, chapter 17, is your definition for eternal life. You want to know what the definition of eternal life? That's, That's the definition. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself and the glory which I had with you before the world was. I have manifested your name to, whom, to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. 
For the words which you gave me I have given to them, and they received them, and truly understood that I came forth from you, and they believed that you sent me. I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world. But on those, and it doesn't mean that he doesn't care about the world, because that would conflict with the scripture when it says, for God so loved the world. But when the world is spoken of in John, he was talking about that rebellious attitude against God, against Christ. But those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine. And I have been glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world, and I come to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me. And I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition. Who is the son of perdition? Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed him. So that the scriptures would be fulfilled. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. I have given them your word. And the world has hated them because they are not of the world. Even as I am not of the world, I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. For their sakes, I sanctify myself that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask on behalf of these alone. Now, this starts the peace for us because in the first part of that passage, he's speaking to the Father. He's making petitions on behalf of himself. Father, glorify me. So there's these petitions Jesus is making for himself. And then he moves into petitions uh, uh, for the disciples, asking God, his Father, uh, on behalf of the disciples. Now, this is where he's speaking to us. Why do I say that? We'll talk about that. Because their testimony, the testimony of the disciples, now that word has spread throughout the centuries, and we are the recipients of that word. Therefore, we are the ones now that have heard and believed, and so that message now speaks to us. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me, and I am in you, I am you, and that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. Notice that theme is over and over throughout the book of John, that theme about believe. Why do I say that? Because I'm not saying anything different from what John would say, that the reason for this gospel is so that people would believe that Jesus Christ is who he is. And so that theme is woven all throughout this text. Belief, 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 believe that Jesus Christ alone, that's who he is. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am so that they may see my glory, which you have given me, for you love me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you, and these have known that you sent me, and I have, been, been, I have made your name known to them and will make it known so that the love with which you love me may be in them, and I in them. Lord, add a blessing to his word. So this morning, 
I want to uh, take a look at these areas, and I want to hit these, just, just touch on these. Jesus is praying, and there are these four areas that I have identified. He prays for himself. He prays for the work. He prays for the disciples, and then he prays for us. Prays for himself. Prays for the work. He prays for the disciples, then he prays for himself. When Jesus prays for himself, he says, glorify the son. Glorify the son. Glorify me together with yourself. Recall that in John 12, 23, he says the hour has come when the son of man is to be glorified. The cross was the glory. Why was the cross the glory? Because it signaled the completion of the work that God had called him. It was a work of obedience that would lead to a place called Golgotha, the place of the skull, the place where he would be crucified. Glory Glory has an interesting uh, meaning to it because in the Old Testament, we pick up this word kabod or kabod, kabod, which means weight or presence. And so there's this sense that when you give glory, you bring this weight or presence. You acknowledge the weight or presence of something. And in reference to God, if God is the one that is receiving glory, you're saying, I acknowledge the weight and presence of God, the reality of God. The awesomeness of God. We don't have the words in our English language to completely describe who he is and all that he is. And yet we can say that he is God Almighty to receive glory. In the New Testament, the word changes over to doxa. We get the word doxology that we we speak a way of praise and glory. N.T. Wright makes a comment at some point where he says that, I'm sorry, not N.T. Wright. David F. Wells, systematic theologist, theologian for Gordon Conwell, makes, makes this comment in one of his books, No Place for Truth. And he talks about in one of his chapters the weightlessness of God, speaking about a time in our age in the postmodern culture when God will carry no weight. And what he's inferring is that we've lost that sense of glory to God. Because God has lost his weight to us because no longer is God reveling. And he's speaking in general about how the church in in general, individuals that make the church up, don't have the awe anymore of God. And so God, in his chapter, he talks about how God has become weightless. The cross is his glory because it signaled the completion of his work and obedience to God. He continues to pray about his work. He says, I have manifested your name in verse 6. I have manifested your name. Words which you have given me, I have given to them. Verse 8. In the Old Testament, there's a sense that name meant that whole character of a person. And so when he says, I have manifested your name, I have reflected the whole character of God because I am God. Reality, he is fully God, fully man. So I have manifested everything you are to them. And therefore, I have not held back anything. They have seen me just, just like they, they're seeing you. Now, why is that significant? Because in the Old Testament, there is this sense that no man could see God and live. In fact, the high priest would have to consecrate himself before going into the Holy of Holies because the very presence of God was there. And so, so it, there's a sense that there was only one person identified that could meet and be with God. 
And the common man, the common woman could not even say God's name. Only the priest could speak to him. And so the common person wouldn't have access to God. And so when, when the writer says, when John says, those who know your name, I, I, I've, I've manifested your name to them. It means I've fully disclosed everything. Now everybody has access to you. All they have to do is believe that you have sent me. Everybody has access to you now. There is nothing hidden now. The name reflects the character. Those that know the name of God know something about his character and his nature, and they will be happy to put their trust in him. In the Old Testament, it is the whole character of the person. Psalm 910 says, those who know your name put their trust in you. So there is something connected about the name, and so when he discloses that the name of God has been disclosed to you, to them, he's saying all of, that, all of who you are is, is now revealed. He goes on in verse 11 and says, they, I keep them in your name. He's petitioning for these disciples that he's going to leave. Keep them in your name. Keep them in that place where they have understood your character. They have understood all that you are and keep them in that place so they never lose that. Why is that important? Because things are going to get rough after I go. The world is going to reject them. Why? Because they rejected me. And so everything that I have represented now is now in them. And as they go out there and try to confront the world, they are going to meet with resistance. Come on, church. You know where I'm going with this. We're disciples. Stay with me. Keep them from the evil one. Keep them from the evil one. 15 sanctify them in truth. Why? Because the evil one is constantly going to be trying to do what? Trying to mess up the program. See, Satan already knows his end. He already knows his end. And so his plan now is basically to try to destroy as many as he can before his end is consummated, before it comes to a close, before Christ comes back. He's take as many as he can out. I have this feeling that he starts with the church folks. Why? Because sometimes we're asleep. We're not paying attention. And we think that all we have to do is just say, okay, just, uh, yes, I believe, I believe God, and just kind of show up and check the box in church, and then everything is going to be okay. And we forget that there is a war going on. There is a battle going on. A battle for the minds, a battle for the hearts. There is, the enemy is out there to destroy, to kill, steal, and destroy. Why? Because that's his nature. He was a liar. He wants to deceive. And so many of us sometimes, many Christians in many churches, fall into this place where they're just kind of moved right into this place of self-deception. Somebody used the illustration of, uh, of uh, putting some crabs in a, in a, in a frogs or crabs or something in a pot and say, as long as you keep it down to low temp and just let them kind of simmer there, they'll all get cooked in due time. If you turn up the fire too much and it starts to boil, some of them might jump out and get away. See, he he knows how to keep it just simmering just a little bit so that we we don't pay attention. Keep them from the evil one. Sanctify them in truth. That's an interesting word. Sanctify them in truth. What does that mean? To make them holy? To consecrate them? 
something that's been consecrated, has been set apart. Just like the priests of the Old Testament, these were set apart, the Levi, Levitical priests, set apart. And he's saying, these are the ones that I have, I have carried out the task with. I've carried out your program with, and now I'm going to leave them. Set them apart, God. Keep them, protect them, but keep them set apart. Does that mean that they're to crawl up under some rock someplace and hide? No. It means that they're to walk in a sense of knowing who they are and who they represent. That they are consecrated as holy people. Be holy because he is holy. God has called us to this place of holiness and he has made us holy because he is holy. We don't have an option of being anything other than holy. Sanctify them in truth. It is important that we have truth. Why? Because there are so many stories out there. So many stories out there. One of the, one of the things about, again, you, you hear me often mention postmodern culture. It's a, it's a thing that fascinates me because I get it now and I see it. So you hear me talk about this a lot. So if I bore you or if you get tired of it, just, just put me on pause in your head for a moment until I get past this part and then you can pick me up in a few minutes. But there's something about within postmodern culture there's there's not so much a reject, there's this rejection of truth, but there's there's kind of truth, understanding the truth in a different kind of way. There's kind of this experiential truth, this authentic kind of self-truth. I understand truth as it relates to me. I define it as it relates to me in my context, in my world. And, and so there's, a, in the postmodern mindset, we, we, we have this kind of like, we, we, want, we want truth, but we want to kind of have it our way. You know, like the Burger King thing, have it your way. We, we want to have it our way. And God says, no, 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 no. You, you don't have an option there to have it your way. It's my way. Because my story is the only story. My meta-narrative is the only story. It is an overarching truth, and all of life experiences and everything comes under that. Nothing wrong with testimonies and all of that stuff, but it has to always be within the confines, within the context of his truth. And then he goes on to say, praying for us at verse 20. And that's where I want to kind of really, I, I want you to really hear this because verse 20, I know that was kind of fast, but I told you in the beginning, I'm not going to exegete every single, I want to get to this piece right here because this is important. Verse 20, I do not ask, on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word. And so there's this, this, this testimony of the word of the apostles that's come down through the centuries. And you and I are the recipients of that word. And because you and I are followers of Jesus Christ, we now become the conduit, the instruments that God is using now to continue to further in this next act, Act 5, seeing to further the church further the advancing of God's kingdom. Move it along. How do we do that? We'll talk about that. One of the things is unity, that they may be one, verse, verse 21 and verse 22. Just like the Father and the Son had unity, he spoke about it over and over again. If there's one aspect of the church that is absolutely essential for the testimony and credibility of the church, it's the unity of the church of God. Why? 
Because without the unity, it looks like we're just a ragtag bunch that are just kind of playing games. The unity with the love of the disciples within that unity sends a message to the world. That's why John would write earlier, I believe in chapter 13, somewhere around 33 or 34, all men will know that you are my disciples by the love that you have for one another. Not loving folks that love you or, or just like you. Not, it, it, it has a different feel to it because it says God's people now, his disciples now have been tasked in Act 5, Scene 2, to go out and love folk. And that means that we've got to start with being a community of love first. When people see that, when they see that there's different ones coming together that would normally not even connect with each other, normally not talk to each other, normally not be around each other, normally not entertain each other. When God, when those people see outside the world, sees that they're coming together, the world is saying, what the heck is going on? Why is she with him? Why is he with her? What are they doing? That group normally doesn't even worship. They don't even like them. Why are they worshiping together? Why? Because they have Christ Jesus in their center and because he is the unifying force that says we're about love we're about unity we're about God's program we don't have an option on that one we don't have an option on them we have to take it seriously that's why he says that they may be perfected in unity I want to shift a little bit because I want to deal with this a little bit this area of disciple because a disciple is what we are. We are disciples. We are followers of Christ. We are the ones now that's been handed off the baton. God has prayed for us. And in praying for us, he, it was, he was demonstrating, Christ was demonstrating a great deal of assurance and confidence that his disciples would pull it off. And so the task that he has given them is our task to strive together in unity and in love. What does it mean to be a disciple? A disciple, they have their lives are shaped by the biblical Jesus story. That's, 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 that's key. There's no other story for a disciple except the biblical story that says God created the heavens and the earth. There is no other biblical story, no other story other than the biblical story that says in the beginning was the word, the Logos. And it tabernacled among us. It stayed, it pitched a tent among us. The manifestation of Christ alone. He, he alone became, the Logos became, became this Christ, this person of the Godhead. That's our story. Disciples realize that Jesus came forth from God and that Jesus is God's ambassador. You have to buy that. That's part of the story. You have to buy that. It's not Jesus plus something out of else. It's not God plus something else. There's all kinds of stories out there. It is Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man, representing the Father when he was on earth. He is the ambassador. They hear his voice. We've been there before. My sheep hear my voice. They know me. And I know them. They seek unity of love for one another. We talked about that. 
They keep God's word as they hear it in Jesus and submit in obedience. Another part of this discipleship factor is the obedience thing. Are we being obedient as disciples? Sometimes it gets a little challenging on the obedience piece because sometimes we're in that cognitive dissident kind of thing where we know what we need to do, but we don't do what we need to do. You know what I mean? Have you been there before? I know I've been there many times. I know I, know I need to do this, but I do something different. And then later on I said, why didn't I do what I knew I, I should have done? Because we don't yield in obedience to the spirit that's in us. Keep God's word as they hear it and they obey him. They've been made holy. And they recognize that God has called them to a place of holiness. That means that we're careful about what we look at on TV, what we see at the movies, what we, what we, what we read. We're, we're, we're very circumspect. We, we, don't, we don't, just don't get involved in any kind of thing. And then they have eternal life. They have eternal life. I want to digress a little bit and talk about this, this, this culture that we're in, because in, in, this, in this American culture in the West, there's this, 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 there are these four central truths, the, the, these realities, I'll call them, and these aren't unique mind. I borrowed these from someone else, but they, they're, they're very true. Biblical liter- liter- illiteracy is rampant. We are in a time when people just do not know the word of God. And they don't care about the word of God. It doesn't carry the weight that it carried 50 years ago. The culture is illiterate about Jesus Christ. And so that makes for a different way that we've got to engage the world as we go out as disciples. Truth is more than the authenticity and personal experience. It, it, it's, but that's the way that the postmoderns see it. They see it as it's, it's just this kind of being authentic and having my personal experience, and that's true because it's true for me. And yet it's more than that, so much more than that. The multi-ethnicity and multiculturalism is a fact of reality. The landscape has changed drastically. And disciples need to understand how to deal with that changing landscape. If you have issues about dealing with someone from another culture, another ethnic background, and you're claiming to be a disciple of Christ, you're going to have some problems with that claim. Why? Because Jesus engaged everybody. Everybody. In fact, he would engage people and some of his disciples would scratch their heads. Why is he dealing with her? Send the children away. You don't even worry about the children. And Jesus would flip the script on him and say, Oh, no, actually, we want the children. Why? Because the kingdom of God is like these. Uh-oh, gotcha. The ones you want to kick to the curb. So we want to take everybody in and be aware that, that there's different backgrounds for everybody. And then the context and the rejection, expect rejection because uh, that's the nature of it. That's what it's about. It's about that we, we're, we're listening to a different story. We bought into a different story. And that story says that Jesus Christ is, is God and Christ alone is salvation. That's the story that we own. So what do we do? What do we do if we, if, 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 if we look at disciples that were, if you look at the 72 that are spoken of in Luke 10, what are those disciples doing? We don't know their names. We just said that those 72, they were sent out. 
But what was it about those disciples? What, what, what is it? You pray, pray. Jesus trained the disciples to do these things. You pray for specific people. Within our context, we're talking about within our context now, Act 5, scene 2, we're taking the gospel out. We are the church, and we're moving out now. Pray for specific people. Every single one of you sitting here today, you know people that need to know Jesus Christ. And for whatever reason, maybe you've never mentioned it. Maybe you've never said anything. To my discredit, I have to confess that I know at least two people right now that I laugh and talk with and have a blast with when I'm around them, and they are on their way to hell. Why? Because I have never shared the gospel with them. Why haven't I shared? Why haven't you shared it, Pastor? I'll you're a pastor. That's just this, this disgusting. Because we start having fun. I just don't, eh, man, I don't want to bring it up. Eh, eh. I'll wait, 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 wait. What happens if you wait and that person checks out? Now what? Maybe you were the person, the very person that God had in that person's life to say something about Christ. But I don't know a lot of the Bible, Pastor Ali. I don't know what to say. Have you prayed about God giving you a, the spirit of obedience to at least get in the game? At least began to pray about what to say. How to say it. We build, we must build friendships. People are looking for friendships. There are so many lonely people out there. And they're looking for connection some kind of way. And maybe through building of those friendships, you have an opportunity to share the gospel. Help those friends experience God's breaking into their lives. God is wanting to break into the lives of, of those friends and those people, those associates. You've you got to be open to how God might creatively want to do that using you. And then you tell the Jesus story. The Jesus story is our story, and we're sticking to it. We don't have any other story. There's one, one more. Maybe not. How many people have seen the movie Gravity? I haven't seen it, so I can't mess it up for those that haven't seen it. I, I remember one pastor used to always mess it up. And I said, why did you do that? Don't, you, it, you just blew the whole story. You know, you know, you know this movie is it's intriguing to me. You know, George Clooney, Sandra Bullock. It's intriguing to me. I, I, I've kind of watched the trailers, and it, it's intrigued me. And like, it's like, I need to see that. That looks like it's going to be really good. Something about trailers, movies. They, they, they're they're kind of designed deliberately to do what? To kind of grab your attention. They, they show you. I watched it on, on, the, on, the, on my computer, and it's about two minutes and 30 seconds. And it's like, I got to see it. I got to see it. But they show you some of the highlights, the key pieces. And I see something that's this, this well, I'm not going to tell you what it is. But you actually see it on the line yourself. But it's like out in space, and it's like some crazy stuff going on out in space. But they give you just, just enough just to hook you. So, so you, you got to see it. You got to see it, right? So what if, what if, what if the people of God are kind of like a movie trailer or a preview? 
What, what if the movie trailer that, that actually says, here's the footage to the real movie that's coming, what if we, the people of God, were like this preview of what's to come yet in terms of God's kingdom? What people want to see us when they look at our lives based on where we're at right now. Are we demonstrating a Christ-likeness as a disciple that makes people say, I want to go to your church. Where do you go to church? I want to worship with you. I want to come over to your place. Do we take the time when we're around people, when, when, when we have an opportunity to say something, when people are going through some terrible situations, we have a chance to kind of bring in the gospel message in a way that, that's not offensive, but in a way that says we are spiritual directors. We have an answer here because we're people of the book. Are people encouraged around us or are they discouraged around us? Jesus' 21st century prayer, Jesus' first century prayer, now with 21st century disciples, us, carries a high level of confidence about the future of this world. High level of confidence. He prayed that prayer for those disciples, but he prayed also for us. And that's my proposition. That prayer was for us. Are we living out our faith as disciples with the same level of confidence that God will keep us so that the world would believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. You and I. You and I. No one else. At the end of the day, it's about what, what are we doing now? What are we doing now? Do we spend time in prayer? Do we spend time in the Word of God? Those early disciples, that was one of the things Jesus said when he was giving his report to his heavenly father. They've kept your word. I gave it to them, they kept it. And they understood it. Are we doing the same thing? Are we just kind of just going along in, in, in the 21st century, just kind of we got our cars, we got our homes, we got our everything, we got our jobs, and everything is just great, and we're just kind of just getting ready to float right into glory when this life is over, and there is no expectation for anything else. Wrong. There is an expectation. God wants us. He cares so much about us. He wants us because he has so much confidence that we can do it because he's walking with us. Amen? God bless you.